When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm about to ask you a really stupid question, but here we go. How does the offer of free beer sound? Sounds like the greatest offer on earth. And as a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you can taste eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to the website beer52.com forward slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com forward slash party and cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that... Political party listeners get an extra two free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. That is a crate of beer. Beer 52 travels the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer. And each month, they send you a different theme. Themes have included Germany. I mean, that one would have been amazing. Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and even more but they haven't forgotten their roots. They're a UK company and they're passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in. You can leave at any time and your first box is sent to you next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case includes award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which takes you through the different themes of the UK craft beer scene, and you get a snack thrown in just to top it all off. And you can pick the sort of beers you want. If you don't like dark beers, you can pick the light beers. Just go to beer52.com forward slash party to get your first crate of eight beers free. And don't forget political party customers, because you're very special people. Get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's beer52.com forward slash party. I mean, that would be a great night in, wouldn't it? Hello and welcome to the Political Party, the first episode recorded since the government brought in these new social distancing measures and even since last week. The atmosphere in the country feels so different. Uh, A mixture of wariness, um, obviously mainly concern for our loved ones, particularly for elderly relatives and friends and family who are perhaps already unwell or have any of the pre-existing conditions the government is talking about that make people more at risk. Um, So I just hope you're well listening to this wherever you are around the world. Um, And I'm planning to continue to podcast these, by the way, uh, as much as I can throughout this period. Um, uh, I don't know how often I'm going to be able to do it. Um, It could be one a week. Um, I'm just going to do as many as I can while I can still get around people, I guess. And it will be primarily around issues um, affected by coronavirus and the government response and policy, um, but also other politics as well, because to some extent other politics is continuing, but but not really. Um, my tour, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, the date's in March and April, um, and I'm so, I've am i got so many messages about them, I couldn't respond to them all individually, um, but I will put something out on social media as well. The date's in March and April, we're going to reschedule for later in the year, so if you've got a ticket to uh, Leeds, York, um, 
Anik and all the others that I'm doing in March and April, we're going to try and reschedule them for later in the year and then your ticket will be valid for those shows rather than just cancel the shows. Um, so hopefully, if you've got a ticket, you can make it to that future date. Um, and then at the moment, dates in May and June, we're hoping can happen in May and June. Um, but obviously, as with everything, no one really knows how this whole thing's going to unfold. So we're just going to keep um, keep an eye on it and I'll keep letting you know what's going on. Um, so I'm sorry about that. I was, I, I mean, the tour had been going so well. I did Maidenhead the other night, just when, uh, you know, the, the, these restrictions were kind of being talked about. And the atmosphere was superb. Probably one of the most special atmospheres um, uh, of any gig I've done, in, in, certainly in recent years. And you just realise that people obviously have to follow the government advice. And you can get the latest government advice through their website, gov.uk. That's gov.uk. We can get the latest advice on coronavirus. Um, but some people still want the show to go on. Um, sadly, at the moment, in the immediate term, that's not possible. So the show will go on eventually uh, later in the year. Um, but sign up to my mailing list for the latest news. That's mattford.com slash mailing hyphen list. Follow me on Twitter at mattford. And... Um, I just really hope you're well, uh, and I hope you're looking after yourself wherever you are. And, um, well, today's guest is uh, very relevant. It's Paul Harrison. Uh, he was um, press secretary to Theresa May at 10 Downing Street, and he was special advisor to Jeremy Hunt when he was at the Department of Health. So this is, he is superb, and this is a real insight into how the government will be thinking about dealing with this crisis um the capability of the state the wisdom of daily press conferences the use of science the use of scientists i guarantee you there'll be so many things you would have wanted to ask that i did as with always i'm sure there'll be there'll be um things i didn't cover but i think given some of the conversations that are out there at the moment this conversation answers a lot of the concerns that i've seen around and that perhaps i have myself um and uh, with no spoilers, is um, as reassuring as it could be at a time like this. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined by Paul Harrison, who uh, was uh, press secretary uh, at, at Number Ten, director of communications, and as well as that, a special advisor to Jeremy Hunt at the Department of Health. Yeah. So you must be watching this. I mean, we're all obviously watching it um, in great detail. You must have a particular uh, insight to bring, really. Well, there are some similarities to some of the things that I did when, particularly I was at the Department of Health. I mean, number 10 was entirely consumed by Brexit, as far as I remember. But uh, I was at the Department of Health when the Ebola outbreak was happening, and there were a couple of cases that got repatriated to this country. So there are, sort of, there are similarities and there aren't, because, of course, I mean... Ebola was much less widespread, um, confined really to a particular part of Africa that isn't used to getting it at that time. Uh, it's obviously more virulent, so it's a, it's a different sort of disease. Uh, but there are you know, commonalities in the way that you prepare for these things. So at the time of Ebola, what, how scared were the government, the department and, and Jeremy Hunt about that spreading to the UK? Well, we were quite worried about it because... Uh, Hopefully this... Uh, sorry. We were quite worried about it. Uh, it Largely because 
generally speaking, that disease is confined to particular parts of Africa who've actually kind of adapted social practice to get quite good at managing it. So societies that don't really sort of habitually have lots of human contact in terms of touching for greetings and social interaction and all that stuff. And actually, the outbreak started in West Africa, countries that aren't used to that and have really, really different sorts of societal norms. Add to that that sort of there's a big route uh, between Nigeria and the UK. Lots of flying does uh, happens happens there, and so sort of shutting that route was quite a big call for British Airways and others at the time. So yeah, we were we worried about it because it's the type of disease that is so contagious that you don't need you know respirators. Uh, you know this is what we're talking about in terms of coronavirus is significantly less contagious what you need is like total isolation beds that have their own air supplies that have their own waste disposal facilities and frankly you know like lots of other countries we don't have many of those so if it were the case that it wasn't just Pauline Kafferke a nurse who'd gone out to help and a couple of others who got tested and yeah some of which found to be positive you know if you if you get more than sort of you know, significant handful of cases, then capacity becomes a problem. That isn't the case here, but that's why we were worried last time. So when you get an outbreak of something like Ebola or coronavirus, and I appreciate they're two very different things yeah, absolutely. And, and existing in different ways, yeah. what is the kind of, how does the machinery of government gear up and how quickly? Generally speaking, my experience, and, you know, I've hung around government in lots of lots of capacities for, for, for six or seven years by the end um that this stuff the kind of emergency disaster unprecedented situation response is the real rolls royce system of the government is where you see the machine really start to purr so we talk about cobra a lot and it's kind of yeah. uh, sort of mythical uh, <laughs> in that mythical way but uh that is a great exercise in bringing people together to make difficult decisions quickly. It's supplied with the best information, you know, the best civil servants are the people who uh, help prepare for those sessions. And and it really does coordinate responses in the kind of way I think people would want to feel that <laughs> that happens. Uh, so I was genuinely impressed by, you know, the sort of resources that government can draw on at times like this. As I say, the COBRA system works very well. The scientific advice, I think people have been struck by actually in, in Sir Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty. Yeah. Uh, you know, just how competent those guys seem to seem to be. Uh, you know, as I say, you, you can draw on those resources. So, so I, the insider's view, if you can call it that, of what I felt last time was actually pretty reassuring uh as a country we're quite good at this stuff um and i hope that that's what people will uh will see a little bit over the next weeks and months because it's going to be a tricky period just on cobra have you ever been to a cobra meeting i have yeah and what are they like uh they are they're nothing like the popular sky drama uh, (laughs) and they're nothing like the situation room you see at the west in the west wing um but Essentially, it's a big table in a pretty large windowless room in the bowels of the cabinet office. Uh, And you draw upon the particular sorts of expertise that you might need at that time. So in the Ebola ones, they were obviously quite health focused. So, you know, you have uh, the chief medical officer around the table, the chief scientific advisor around the table. You have uh, ministers from the relevant departments, the prime minister, depending on how serious the issue is. And obviously, Boris is chairing a lot of the Cobras at the moment. Uh, Then you get a group of officials who sit around the side uh, who need to be sort of present and informed and then uh, when it's a really big exercise there's also a kind of an overflow room where people can see what is happening on a video link but not actually contribute Uh, and then you get sort of um, 
you get kind of slideshows and presentations based on what everybody understands the particular piece of information to be at that time, which is incredibly called the CRIP, Commonly Recognized Information Picture. Okay. <laughs> and so there is technology in there because sometimes yeah. when people who've been to Cobra meetings play it down because it's nothing like the Robert Carlyle thing. They make it sound like it's a bit of a shithole, like it's a kind of just a, almost like a crypt or a, or a basement. It, it at least does have Wi-Fi and a projector and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it has the things that you would need to make those kind of decisions to do that kind of job. And you can dial people in and do video links for uh, for other countries. So when we were doing Ebola, for example, you might dial in, you know, the High Commissioner for one of the territories that was affected, so that they could say this is the situation on the ground. And how does it compare to other political forums like Cabinet? Does it sometimes? Is there something about Cobra that focuses the mind? Is there an adrenaline about those meetings? Firstly, the meetings generally by necessity are relatively short, so the sort okay. of the, the the kind of working assumption is that cabinet is about two hours, and and Cobra generally speaking is about an hour. So there might be an element of focus that comes with that, but it is, yeah, it's a it's a format where where you start. You know, everybody will have been briefed and will be on their game because you know it's clearly of importance and so you know you start from a position of everybody knowing the facts and then it is a forum really to coordinate and make decisions uh the fact at the moment it's being chaired by the prime minister a lot obviously helps too because you know it's kind of the action this day kind of vibe because calling a cobra meeting in itself it <laughs> seems a news event isn't it well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean is that is that fair? I mean, should we just accept it as a normal piece of political apparatus now? But it, it tends to suggest that the government is taking it more seriously. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, at the moment, we're, it's important that the government is able to offer a certain amount of public reassurance. And so, in a way, that's not an unhelpful thing, that, mm. that phenomenon that you described. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing that I suppose happens behind the scenes is that the Cobras you hear about and get announced on the Sky News... Uh, I don't know why we're going for Sky particularly today, but uh, <laughs> but that are announced on Rolling News um, are the ministerial ones. There are two sorts of Cobras. So uh, you also get officials Cobra, uh, okay. and that's sort of Cobra bracket O, and then the other ones are Cobra bracket M. Uh, so you might get an officials meeting who are you know basically stuffed full of clever people, uh, civil servants, who might do something to lay the groundwork and say you know, what is it do we understand? What information will we need to make decisions? Let's thrash this out amongst ourselves. And then you have the sort of executive super cobra, if you like, uh, that is the ministerial one. You mentioned Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, and I yeah. think people have found those two hugely reassuring figures. Yeah. As someone who's worked as director of comms at number 10, do you think that's the right approach to have the prime minister in the middle flanked by effectively two non-political experts? I do, and I'd say uh, I'd say two or three things. Uh, firstly, Robbie Gibb would kill me. He was the director of comms at Number Ten. I was the press secretary. Oh, I'm very uh, sorry. But, um, but uh, so I think two striking things. Firstly, I worked with Chris a bit when he was at the department. So he wasn't the chief medical officer then. Yeah. Uh, but he had a, a similar sort of role, and in some ways, you know, I think again, people should be a bit reassured if you were picking someone's CV to be chief medical officer right now, you'd pick him. Yeah, he's an epidemiologist. Uh, he's a research leader. He used to work at the London School of, of Tropical Medicine. You know, all of those things, like, he, he gets this stuff and he's steeped in it, you know, through a career that lots of other people would recognise as, uh, as pretty impressive. He's also just a very nice, personable guy. And he has that gift of 
being essentially a brain on legs yes who's also able to communicate kind of concisely and with empathy and understanding which those two things don't always go together <laughs> so uh so you know i think we're lucky to have him um but i think also just in the, the way that those press conferences work it's i think good to see the pm actively deferring to people yeah. and saying these are the experts who are helping me make these decisions i am acting on the basis of their advice so let them explain it to you because they have qualifications that I don't. I'm a politician. And that body language, I think, is really important. The other thing I was genuinely very impressed by, because you don't see it an awful lot, where Chris was talking at one of the Downing Street press conferences last week, and he said, there are things of which I am certain, and I'll tell you them. There are things of which I'm confident, and there are things we don't yet know. And it's not something we're used to in politics. Most people, yeah. you know... <laughs> cover the things they don't know with a frantic desperation and god knows i did that when i was trying to brief the lobby but um he's what he's doing by being honest is implicitly sort of reinforcing the value of the other testimony so if you're saying i don't know this but then you go on to say you know x y z are true you of course as a someone who's watching it think well yeah okay he knows that stuff he's telling me that stuff because he's also prepared to tell me what he doesn't know with with the use of those two, I mean, as a as a comms guy, would you coach them at all? Would you give them any advice before something like that? No, and to be honest, I think in that situation, I would be uncomfortable trying to do that. Uh, I think your role is to be a supporting one, if anything. So, you know, the point of them being there, the reason they're reassuring is because the public think, rightly, that they're going to tell them the truth. Mm. And so you don't, you know, to interact with that process is kind of stupid. I think what you would probably think about is just sort of saying, you know, this is a kind of a media overview. This is this is where people are interested. This is where the journalists are focusing their attention. But that's as an update, a kind of a for your information, do whatever you want with it, as opposed to saying, you know, I suspect I suggest you answer this question in that way. I'm certain that that, that wouldn't be happening. But with the Prime Minister, how do you prepare them for a Q&A like that? So everybody does it differently. With Theresa, we used to call it net practice. Uh, so, um, cricket fan, obviously. Uh, so, you know, you'd sit down and generally speaking, me or uh, James Slack at the start of a day, um, James Slack is the PM's official spokesman. He's still there. He's a civil servant and he's also a fantastic guy. Uh, but you, we would sit down and say, basically, this is what's in the papers uh, from our point of view. These are the things we think we're going to get pressure on. Uh, these are the bits of information we might need to know from you at this stage to kind of start us working out how we're going to deal with questions and, and answer things during the day. But then before a sort of a set piece interview, you sit down and you say, look, this is broadly, this is the format you can expect. Uh, this, this is what we think the journalist might ask. Obviously, you know, you don't get that information in advance, not even if you're the prime minister. Uh, so maybe especially not if you're the prime minister and uh, and then you sort of you might I might be the questioner sometimes so you know I pretend to be a significantly less attractive Laura Kunzberg uh, <laughs> but you know and say sort of try to try to push on the areas you think will be the ones that you get pushed on actually in there and ha because every politician has their own style some politicians mm. can handle a grilling from their staff prior to, and they prefer it to be harder in the practice than it is in yeah. reality. Some politicians can be quite sensitive, perhaps, yeah. about their um, staff <laughs> talking to them in that particular way. What was Theresa May's character like? Could she take a hard grilling from her team? She could, yeah. I mean, she definitely could. 
I mean, none of us, I don't think, ever used it as like a catharsis moment to be able to actually say rude things to the prime minister. But uh, but no, she took it all in very good part. Uh, Yeah, I I think she saw it as necessary preparation. And I mean, frankly, if you think of some of the interviews uh, that she had and uh, over the course of her time, politically, it was pretty difficult in the two years I was there. And so sometimes the interviews were, you know, I hesitate to use the word hostile, but you know, heavily skeptical, uh, perhaps. So, so that kind of prep was was good, and I think she yeah. saw it that way. Do you think, given her attributes and given her character, she would be better suited to a scenario like this than the current prime minister? I think that. I think it's impossible to say. Uh, I think the she has a calmness uh, in terms of her decision making, which I think is an asset, and I think people see her as a grown up, but. I don't say that in contrast with the current prime minister at all. I think, you know, the decisions he's made are informed by the science. Clearly, as I say, he's deferring to experts. Um, You know, he's doing maximum transparency. I mean, I'm sure we would have been in a daily press conference situation as well if uh, Theresa had still been prime minister, and in which case the same thing is happening uh, despite a change of personnel. So, no, I mean, honestly, I think that Boris is doing a good job and I think some people who are sceptical of him and obviously you know I lost my job in part because <laughs> uh, because he came in because Theresa lost hers you know I think have to say he's doing what he can uh, in a very difficult situation and I think you know there are some people who are very critical of you know Michael Gove's much vaunted you know we've had enough of experts kind of thing at a time when the Prime Minister is weathering significant amounts of political pressure not that this should be about political pressure but he is in order to follow expert advice and as i say i think we've all got to just think about how much we're prepared to credit him for doing that you mentioned daily press conferences there are they necessarily a good thing is there not a risk that you have to fill that time and end up making announcements perhaps you didn't well i think i think there are going to be lots of things that that need to be said you know we'll see Later today, the the new, very new Chancellor uh, is going to be talking about support for businesses. That's really important. There will, because particularly the, I mean, look, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, and, you know, <laughs> reassuringly, I'm not going to pretend to be one, but, but, you know, everything that everybody seems to be saying and what the scientific advice seems to be is that the progression of this disease is going to be pretty rapid, particularly in places like London, you know, for the next several weeks maybe longer and so I think there probably will always be things to say uh if nothing else the act of and I give Boris again credit for this coming out not that he necessarily you know needs credit from me but uh, but you know but the fact he's coming out and he's taking all the questions that get thrown at him you know in a calm manner you know there is reassurance in that even if you're not really saying anything that's particularly newsworthy I think the fact that you're just saying I am here, and on behalf of the people who read your newspapers and watch the TV and listen to the radio, I'll answer what you have to you have to ask, you know, to the best of my ability. I think there is something innately reassuring in that. Is there anything about their comms strategy so far you would have done differently? I think I, d- I do think they're getting it right, uh, and I think that's important. Uh, the only thing, realistically, is however that Robert Peston blog which first surfaced the idea that people who were particularly vulnerable over 70 might have to stay in their homes for four months uh however that came out that wasn't a helpful thing uh, to happen that said 
I mean, I'd lose count of the number of things that weren't particularly helpful to say at that particular moment when I was in government. And it was almost always cock up rather than conspiracy. So, you know, I'm, I'm loath to just assume that someone from the number 10 operation just deliberately uh, briefed that as some kind of mad pitch rolling exercise because it, that clearly wouldn't have been the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to get a medical expert to explain why this advice is being given and uh and, and and when it should take effect so you know as i say that was unhelpful but you know i it's it's hard to say uh that it was sort of you know an act of an act of stupidity i think these things sometimes happen and there was there's sometimes the tendency within our media to overcorrect. so we got to a stage where you know boris was doing well at the press conferences he was clearly listening to the advice and it, people were talking about you know what a comms triumph it had been in the first few days pest and blog comes out and then we're talking about a comms disaster and i don't think i don't think the second one is particularly true the only other i suppose reflection on politics more broadly is that i think one of the things that is just kind of interesting about different personalities and you mentioned what would be the difference if, if you know theresa would be doing this or or somebody else uh, i think that the case that the science guys if we can call them that crew, it really demeans them like these incredibly, incredibly bright professors of everything. Um, the case that they're making, I suspect, is so convincing internally that you would have to make massive changes in personality not to be doing broadly the same thing. So I think that they've set out an argument and they've clearly, they've got the ear of the prime minister, but I suppose my point is they would probably have the ear of lots of other prime ministers. Uh, I suspect that, you know, without... You know, I haven't talked specifically about, uh, to her about this, but you know, I suspect that Theresa would be doing broadly similar things because I think the quality of the advice is such that it becomes hard, if not impossible, to ignore. And I hope that that is somewhat reassuring too. You have a situation where, with some people, regardless of what the government says, and this is just the way the public behaves, elements of the public will not trust what's being said, and not even just on the hard conspiracist fringes. Yeah. People will say, well, they've closed schools in Ireland. They've done this in Italy. They've done yeah. this elsewhere. How hard is that as a comms challenge to reassure people, but not necessarily to comment on every single thing that every other mm. government is doing? Yeah, it's difficult. You have to, if we were Americans, we were talking about baseball, you'd have to work out which pitch to swing at. Uh, <laughs> and, some, and, and that's an art, not a science. Um, but yes, it, it, it is difficult. But I think transparency is at the root of it because ultimately you can allow the media space to answer, ask those questions and you can ask them... Oh, sorry, I've got that like, you know, the wrong way around, which is a bit worrying, isn't it? But, but you know, you, if you give them space to ask those questions, then you can answer them as, uh, as best you can. Um, the, you know, the international environment is, is incredibly complicated at the moment. And, you know, as I say, you have to trust the people who are giving the advice internally that they're that they're reading that picture and that they're reading it broadly right i mean i think you know interesting when even this morning you know we're in a situation where sweden has said that they're going to close i think colleges and universities but not schools and that's clearly been one of the areas of focus in this country and the reason as far as i understand it is that they think if you do close schools then you give a lot of people who work in their healthcare system our nhs immediate childcare obligations and so you know my hope is that uh, that these things are being done for precisely the right reason i think it's incredibly important in a system you know democracy people are governed only by consent skepticism 
is incredibly healthy and I think it's one of the best things about the British national psyche actually because you know why should you just believe someone unquestioningly but you know if people are giving uh, scientific advice then you know and there's political cost to following that I do think that it's an admirable thing for politicians who are prepared to bear that cost. Elements of the media will frame different parts of the advice in different ways. So The Guardian, for instance, uh, described it as a U-turn to, to yeah. change the measures. Yeah. Other people saying, well, the, the government were clear that this was a, an escalating process and so you yeah. move from one week to the other and you take different measures as it evolves. Mm. Do you perceive that, that, that change in measures to be a U-turn or were they sticking to the plan? I don't think it was a U-turn for what it's worth. I think that, you know... The amount of times that you heard, you know, the three musketeers say, uh, you know, that we, there are a range of measures. They didn't outline what every single one was. They weren't exhaustive, but we want to take the, we want to do the right thing at the right time. You know, I heard that an awful lot at the start of this. And, and I, and I think that's a reflection of where we are now. So no, I don't see it as a U-turn. You know, that's not to say that sort of, in the abstract message discipline is important because people get their information from lots of different places and it's why it's important that dcms are doing this kind of you know sort of uh, myth buster kind of rapid rebuttal because some of the stuff you see online is like <laughs> extraordinary and frightening and you know I, my sister sent me something a little while ago that you know, it was on facebook and was in pretty wide circulation that mentioned the word stanford as a way of trying to oh accrue credibility i suspect it was somebody worse in the admissions office but said you know essentially if you sip water every 15 minutes then you wash the virus down to your stomach and that incinerates it and you know <laughs> i just it's it is important that the government is also kind of has a reactive mode as well as telling people what they need to know in terms of saying, look, you know, this is not right, this is not right. Um, but should they be busting myths like that? I mean... I mean, I'm not suggesting that as a particular yeah, but, example because it's clearly a bit mad. But but I think there's... I suppose what I'm saying is that the the overall kind of comms approach has to be both proactive and reactive. Yes. You have to tell people what you think they need to know at particular points, but you also need to say, um, you know don't be concerned about X, Y, Z or, you know, follow up on the stuff that, that is that is proactive too. There's a political element to some of the yep. fear and maybe some of the, consp- I mean, it, it is just conspiracist nonsense where people say, I've seen people, not that blue ticks matter, but people who should know better sharing this stuff and saying this stuff on social media that, oh, well, the Tories actually want elderly people to die and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Forgetting the fact that elderly people vote Tory, which is really reliably as well. <laughs> it's, it's not just they vote the Tory, but they turn out every time. <laughs> it's yeah. a real flaw in the theory. But do you yeah. think, you know, when that perception is kind of not out there, out there, but there's enough of it about. I mean, I suppose you can't have Boris Johnson coming out no. and saying, oh, "I absolutely don't want to kill old people." No. But how do you how do you deal with those elements? I'm not sure that I'm not sure what role the government can can play. Uh, in debates like that, they're just, you know, they're clearly bananas, aren't they? Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think in most cases, despite the situation we're in, which is obviously going to be a huge, it's a totally unprecedented national challenge, really. But I am an optimist about these things. And I do think that most people in this country know better than, yes. to, than, than to think. And we should, you know, and I think to, 
to behave as if you're suggesting otherwise is a bad thing. So there are some myths that don't need to be debunked yes. because they are ludicrous. And this falls into that category. I think that, as I say, you can you can treat people with with more respect than to engage with that as if it's a widespread mainstream. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dominic Cummings being around as a figure, and obviously he's, he's not usually visible during this period. Um, when the phrase herd immunity was kind of out, you know, a phrase mm. most people had never heard before. Mm. It feels like a kind of Cummingsism, even if it's not. And that perhaps, do you think that was quite unhelpful to the perception that, well, this is maybe some sort of, not an experiment, but the British government is doing things differently because Dominic Cummings is involved? I, no, I, I, I mean, look, I, I, I don't walk around those corridors or sit in those meetings anymore, but no, I think that. I don't agree with that interpretation really at all where, where I've seen it. I think if you are sort of a virologist or, you know, an epidemiologist, the phrase herd immunity will mean, some, mean something to you. And part of the sort of the novel value of this disease, unlike flu, is that people don't really have any antibodies that allow you to allow you to combat it. So, you know, there are there are terms that sort of speak to that or don't speak to that. Um, you know, we use the term herd immunity when we talk about vaccination programs for kids. So, yes. you know, sort of something like men B, which we have a relatively new vaccine for, we talk about developing herd immunity by rolling out to children over time. Um, I think, you know, where, where the government has landed is, is exactly right, which is to say, we're going to stop at nothing to save as many people's lives as we can. And that's simple. Uh, I think, you know the term herd immunity circulating. You know, I, I I assume it must be part of the scientific picture because ultimately, if you, you know, this would never happen. But if you decided that you just put troops on the streets and and said, you know, everyone's going to stay in their homes for five years, yeah. uh, and we're going to work out a way to bring you, you know, biscuits, then and podcasts and podcasts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, hello to everyone else who's also working from home. Um, but uh, you know, you then absent a vaccine, everybody goes out again and doesn't. I mean, you know, like I'm not an expert, but doesn't the whole thing just reoccur? Yeah. So you do need people to, and I, but I think protecting life is part of that. You need people to, if it is inevitable that some people are going to get this because we don't have a vaccine and people don't have natural resistance, then you want them to get it, but get better. Uh, and I think that's what we're talking about. Dealing with the lobby 
is always difficult. At a time <laughs> like this, it must be particularly so when different outlets and different journalists are looking for different angles. How do you contain that beast at a time like this? Well, I think the first thing is these guys are doing their jobs and it is important to remember that no matter how fractious it, it gets and no matter how fractious it sometimes gets. I also think, you know, credit where it's due, I think people are largely behaving pretty responsibly. Uh, you know, there have been banner headlines about the nature of the challenge that we face and, you know, it's not often... We used to sort of, you knew you were in a big news environment where everybody splashes the same thing. Uh, So we have that for Ebola, uh, but, you know, we're having it quite a lot now. But people are reporting what the Prime Minister is saying, and it just happens to be of huge consequence. So I think, generally speaking, most journalists are trying to be pretty responsible. Obviously, Piers Morgan is... uh, uh, makes his name by being a contrarian so he's refused to fall into that category but but yeah I think um, yeah I, th- I, th- I think as I say it, like, there's not to pretend that there won't be tensions but you know there are, there are things you can do to ensure you know good relationships are maintained at times like this so you know it's worth doing them The government advice is obviously going to change by the day on some days yeah. yesterday um the Prime Minister says to avoid pubs and theatres and mm. places like that, but not saying the government will actually close these places down. Yeah. Some people might interpret that as favouring the insurance industry over the hospitality industry. Is there something more to it? I, I honestly don't know. Um, I think, you know, perhaps it is a reflection of the type of country that we are. Uh, you know, it... it I mean, I have, sorry, this is a really sort of London metropolitan sort of view, but I've seen some restaurants, that a particular restaurant critic has been uh, retweeting where people, sort of restaurants are trying to alter their offer a little bit so that they can, you know, make food that you can cook at home or, you know, so you don't have to sit at a counter or a table and and eat, uh, which clearly isn't something that's recommended anymore. So, you know, that advice does at least permit that a little bit, whereas in France you have essentially a curfew, troops on the streets and banned closures of, of, of everything. Uh, so maybe it allows people a bit of flexibility, but of course, you know, the viability of business at the moment is a huge economic, social, political question because, you know, I mean, we're not still quite a nation of shopkeepers, as uh, Napoleon said, but... You, but still, lots of people work in these industries and they'll be worried. So hopefully the government will be able to do more to reassure them over the coming days. Uh, is it a conservative thing? Do conservatives not want to be seen to be using draconian state measures, rather just suggest it and hope that people follow the advice? I, d- I really don't know. I mean, I think what I've been struck by, to be honest, at the moment is how apolitical the environment is. And I think, as I say, part of that... Uh, you know, there are obviously the nutters, but 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 part of that I think is founded on the fact that firstly, there's a sense this is a real national moment, and I think people feel a sense of responsibility for that. And most people in politics have the right motives, whatever their ideology. Yeah. Uh, but also, I suppose I I do think I feel this quite profoundly that pretty much whoever was in government would be doing broadly what we're doing now as it, because of the quality of the, the advice that they're getting uh, and the the skill with which those arguments are made. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's political, a particularly political environment given the scale of the kind of the national questions that we're trying to address as a country at the moment. I don't know whether it will stay that way. But you don't think Jeremy Corbyn might have, for instance, said we're going to announce a, a sort of relief for shopkeepers, we're going to give more state... 
funding to people who lose their jobs. We're going to guarantee a, a minimum minimum income perhaps mm. for people on zero hours contract. I mean, I, you can't say that that won't happen, and, and and maybe it will. And there will there will be debate about what the right thing is to do here because I think you know there isn't scientific consensus about you know how you help people with their obligate how you help employers with statutory sick pay or you know whether the measures in the budget on that school were enough or you know Macron's announcement this morning very very striking where he said I don't want anybody to go bust as a result of any business to go bust as a result of the coronavirus outbreak so there is a there is a new political bar I guess but but it will be for the government to try and to try and work those things through. What do your political instincts tell you about how this situation changes politically and what the risks are? I mean, my political instincts, generally speaking, are terrible when it comes to predictions. <laughs> so you know, uh, we are doing this in uh, a flat that uh, I decided to buy one month before the result of the Brexit referendum. So <laughs> confident was I of a Remain win. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> dropped significantly in value since. But um, uh, I, I think it's inevitable that there will be more politics injected into this. Um, uh, but I think the question that the government are setting themselves, and I think this is right, is not about politics, it's about competence. And, you know, they need to make sure that the NHS has everything that it can possibly ask for in order to try and support people through this as best they can. There's, there's no doubt there's going to be massive, massive pressure on services. But, you know, I think the political questions will almost come as a result of the competence questions if they do. And frankly, I think a lot of people, even who don't agree with the jobs I've done and the people that I've worked for, would probably say, we hope those questions don't have to arise because ultimately... You know, we are we're talking about this kind of unprecedented outbreak of disease, which has a potential to cause harm to a lot of people. How does a government decide who to listen to at a time like this? I mean, there's the the Imperial College paper that was published online yeah. that seems to have perhaps sped mm. things up a little bit. Seems mm. like Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance were, were moved perhaps into action by that. Perhaps they know the people who wrote the article and they take mm. it more seriously. I mean, how prioritising the people you take advice from must be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, people tend to have kind of established roles. So, you know, there, there is sort of an infrastructure for these sort of things. And there is an existing plan on uh, pandemic response, which I think is like a 2011 document originally, but it, it's old um, because these things get done in advance uh, and as I say you, you do have people in particular roles I mean I suppose in a way it is up to Chris Whitty and, and Patrick have teams that work for them and we've heard about SAGE which is yeah. you know really an amazing like 20 year attempt at a pun because now we're talking about SAGE advice which I mean somebody <laughs> was using their head a long time ago when they set up the name of this committee but um, but you know I think they have a responsibility in terms of who they listen to and who they reflect up at the top of the pyramid it goes that way you know lots of people can feed in uh at the bottom and then there are relatively few places in in the prime minister's office and you know that's where some of the decisions get made all around the table at cobra uh but everyone is drawing on their best advice in order to to give the advice that they're, hopefully they're they're giving think about your time working for for jeremy hunt mm. um at, at the department of health how often do I mean just in terms of what the department can and can't do, and the the way it spends its time outside of the day to day stuff? Yeah. How often are people modelling 
these sorts of things, outbreaks and viruses? There are, I mean, there are dedicated people who, in Public Health England, who I think, by the way, did an extraordinary job at the start. So you'll remember there were some sort of cases from people who'd been skiing, unlike me, my trip got cancelled <laughs> last week, but uh, but there were some cases of people who'd gone through a ski resort on the way back from the Far East, I think, and a couple ended up in Brighton, from what I remember. And Public Health England sort of squashed the start of the outbreak, actually, because they did what you call contact tracing. They isolated the people. They worked out everybody they'd come into contact with, monitored their symptoms and made sure that either they got care or they weren't infectious. And so they probably delayed the start of this by a, an amount of time. The people who do that are dedicated to those jobs. So probably some of the same people who helped us on Ebola would have uh, would have helped this time. Uh, the department has particular people who work in the public health directorate uh, who who draw on this. So there are people who have expertise at lots of levels uh, who the government will be drawing on now. How difficult is it for a Secretary of State for Health at a time like this when the Prime Minister rightfully has to take the lead, mm. but the, the Secretary of State knows the brief better, has the detail? I mean, do you think, just purely in terms of comms, it always has to be the same person speaking all the time or is there is there space for different voices no i think there is space for different voices and i think we've seen the emergence of some good new ones uh well like the most obvious way to answer this question most people wouldn't have heard of chris witty uh yeah. before this all started and and you know as I, I think he's doing a pretty extraordinary job but there are a couple of deputy chief medical officers people might have seen on twitter that uh dr harry's i think her name is but she came in and was interviewed by by boris in in number 10 about symptoms and what you should do if you're concerned about coronavirus you know that's another voice that we probably won't have heard a great deal from before although obviously in the medical community will be well known um so yeah this is a team effort and i think that what the, the health secretary matt hancock and, and the pm are doing is they're trying to link up and you know uh supplement each other complement each other uh i think that's that's a you know, this is an example of the system working well. So, you know, you had my own question time a little while ago, very open and, and transparent answering people's questions. Uh, the PM will lead the big, uh, the big set pieces because I think, you know, that is the national expectation. Uh, this is a very serious thing, but it's important that he has a good supporting cast around him. And I think so far we've seen that he does. But I think it's such a strange period, this, because... Even though the, the infection rate is rising, the vast majority of people haven't had it. It yeah. feels a bit like the calm before the storm. People, The reality, perhaps, of the severity of it hasn't really started to impact people's lives, most people's lives yet. Mm. I mean, how... And obviously, this is... Who knows the answer to this question, but as someone who's experienced the senior levels of government, how fundamental a change do you think this is going to be for our... For our lives and for our society, I think. Well, I think it's really fundamental. Uh, I work in an office in central London this morning. I did not get up and go to work, and it's a weekday. Uh, I think the fact that you know we will have to think about. I mean, okay, this is. A, I, th I think a lot of the attitudinal polling bears this out, but you know. As of right now, I feel healthy. I don't think that I have contracted anything, but obviously there is an incubation period with this disease where I might not know straight away. Uh, and because I live by myself, there's a certain amount of, you know, I'm going to get pretty bored, I imagine, over the next few weeks in following this advice, which obviously I will do. But 
so I thought, you know, in these kind of situations, natural inclination would be, well, I might go down to my parents' place on the coast for a, and see them for a bit. But you want to be as sure as you can, because they're a little bit older, that you're not putting anyone else at risk. And yeah. I would never, ever, ever have thought about that before or been in a circumstance where I might even have had to consider it. So I think society is going to change in all sorts of ways. And... Uh, you know some of the really profound things that we uh, depend upon will look a bit awry for a bit. Uh, you know the fact we're going out a lot less. The fact that um, you know uh, you have to maybe just think quite how you're going to get you know the particular uh, the particular thing you might need into your home. You know if you run out of shampoo or toothpaste or or whatever you know you just people are going to need to to go through that process and I think as you do that that brings the stark reality of this home you know I mean my perspective doesn't really matter anymore but I do think it's something that that the country will be able to rise to and I think we'll see that but yeah it is going to be a really profound change and I, I think there are probably there will be some additional measures that the government may or may not do but could do and and even if you're saying, you know, no longer go to the pub, no longer go to the theatre, um, you know, stay away from people, stay away from restaurants. I mean, that's a that's a big thing. What about communicating with people about things like panic buying? I mean, mm. supermarkets are just of their own volition imposing limits on how much you know, mm. paracetamol can, people can buy. Yeah, but it's incredible. We're living in a country that until yet last week yeah. could easily manage the demands yeah. of 60 70 million people yeah. on a, a, a supermarkets big and small yeah. always had enough no exactly and yet now i mean do do you think the government should consider or or uh, indeed enact a kind of hard hitting campaign a public information campaign tv adverts well i mean the the supermarkets themselves have done a bit of that they wrote a joint letter at the weekend didn't they but i suppose yeah th- this this i find just a little bit kind of confusing on the basis of that yeah we you know if you usually sort of do your shopping on the way home from work and you just buy stuff for that night then you you probably need to change that pattern a little bit uh but but you know fundamentally we're going through a really challenging time but the supermarkets have the same quantity of food as a week ago and the same number of people live in the country (laughs) as a week ago so so there must be the answer here somewhere um but you know, you hear lots of stories about the lacks of consideration, uh, even in supermarkets now, and I'm sure that's that's what will happen. You, you know, people will just be a bit circumspect about, you know, do they really need, uh, you know, 400 kilos of tortellini? You were working for a prime minister again, and they said, "I think we're going to have to ration stuff." I mean, do you, do you think that's a kind of last resort or do you think it's a sensible policy at a time like this? I, I can't really answer that question. I mean, as I say, it, it seems fundamentally, you know, rationing happened during the war because food supply massively contracted. Uh, food supply isn't massively contracting at the moment, so it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would need to do. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, people will have their own experiences, but, you know, there's a shop up the road I went to at the weekend to buy some lunch and you know it seemed if you didn't want pasta or particular kinds of lentil then it it seemed 
to look pretty well as it usually as it always does. So there's a lot about the area you live in if lentils are stockpiled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no pre lentils whatsoever. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think you know, but clearly there are some instances where demand is outstripping supply and you've got to hope that people will, will, will do everything to write that. And I think the supermarkets are kind of upping their game too, as far as I can tell. Do you feel, and obviously this is a question for everyone really, but having seen government from the inside sufficiently reassured that they know what they're doing, that they have the resources to ensure that life can carry on as, as, as much as normal. I guess I'm asking you to reassure all our listeners, really. Well, um, but only do that if you feel, my, feel you can. Well, I suppose what I can say is my experience was a reassuring one. As I said, I, I felt that the operation was pretty Rolls-Royce when it came to those certain challenges. Um, this is a different order of challenge, and you know, uh, it, it's going to be a big thing that we're all going to have to adapt to. I don't doubt that as I say, the, the quality of the advice. I don't doubt the quality of the people who are involved. I know, I know some of them. Um, and so I, I think that that will, that will hopefully, you know, the good will out uh, is, is the hope. But um, I think the difference probably between, you know, this and some other things that as a country we've tried to tackle in the past, uh, particularly more specific sorts of disease, is that I think everybody has to understand that there is a role for them all to play here. So this should be a sense of national mission and a, and a national effort because we all have responsibility to protect other people. You know, we've seen from Italy that mortality rates accelerate really, really significantly in the upper age bands. So, you know, you have to be careful not to put other people in danger and take those sensible uh, sort of precautions. But yeah, the co- I, I think the government is doing everything it reasonably can. I think that that will continue. This is a huge, huge imperative. Uh, and frankly, lots of other more day-to-day domestic things will quite rightly fall by the wayside. Um, and the government is reshaping itself in order to do that. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a role for all of us too. And you know, the hope is that, that that sort of sense of national mission, as it has on lots of other occasions, doesn't let us down. I guess that's a hopeful message to end on. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. There you go, Paul Harrison, who very kindly let me go around to his flat and interview him, giving brilliant insight into the mind of Downing Street, dealing with the media, the capacity at the Department of Health, the fact that these things are um, constantly monitored, that there is... And the, the phrase that you said that really reassured me um, was that in a crisis, that's when, as he said, the Rolls-Royce really starts to purr, and I've, I found that hugely reassuring from someone who's been on the inside at the highest level, who knows these people, who knows what they're capable of, knows what the apparatus of the state is. Um, I, that was something that I took uh, took real heart from, so I'm delighted that Paul came on the show, especially in the circumstances. Uh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I periodically ask people... Um, where they're listening. I suppose at a time like this, um, that becomes more important um, to try and connect us all together as listeners of this show um, and think of each other wherever we might be. So let us know where you're listening. Let me know if there's anyone you'd like me to try and get on, although let's see how I manage to get on throughout this period and how long this period lasts. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a really good go and try and get around as many interesting and relevant people as I can 
uh, during this time and while I can. So um, I'm really sorry about the tour dates in March and April, but we're trying to reschedule them. Some, I think, have been rescheduled. We're trying to reschedule them all. Um, but if in doubt, get in touch with the venues because um, it's the venues that the people who book my tour are trying to talk to. Um, so it, that might uh, that might be a bit quicker. They may have answers um, slightly ahead of the time that I do. Um but hopefully all those March and April dates can be rescheduled later in the year. I can come around to all these wonderful places. I was meant to be going to Leeds tomorrow. It's just heartbreaking. I realised, by the way, that um, that is a relatively small problem compared to what other people will face. But it's just such a joy doing it. And, um, well, I suppose it, it's the, compared to what other people are going to go through in the next um, few uh, weeks and months, um, I really shouldn't complain. But thank you to all of you who came so far. Thank you to those of you who have bought tickets for the rest of the tour. Um, and uh, as I say, um, May and June are still on sale at mattford.com slash live. Hopefully we can just reschedule them all. I'll see you all later in the year. I'll see you at some point, I'm sure. Um, but please wash your hands regularly. Follow the government advice. Uh, if you're over 70, self-isolate for the correct amount of time. If you if you have the conditions the government are listing that make you more vulnerable, please read and follow the advice. Um, and yes, I'll see you soon. I don't know how soon I'll see you. Um, but uh, thanks for downloading this. It feels weird asking you to leave an iTunes review at a time like this, but... I suppose if everyone's sat at home, you've got a bit more time on your hands to do some admin. So add this to your list. Must give the Political Party podcast a positive review on iTunes. I'll see you soon. Right. <laughs>